Welcome back to United We Listen. This is part two of our episode involving the interview with Mayor Daniel Corona. If you are not as familiar with U.S. politics, I encourage you to go back to part one of this episode if you have not done so already to listen to a brief overview of everything discussed in this podcast so you are 100% ready to listen and that you will understand everything. The goal of United We Listen is to make everything 100% accessible and the rundown serves as our way of creating a small briefing about the episode before anything goes forward in order for it to be accessible to everyone regardless of their level of political knowledge. So once again, I encourage you to go back and listen to it if you've not already done so. If you have or if you are more familiar with politics, please enjoy this episode and please be sure to share it with your friends. Thank you once again for your support and enjoy the interview. So right now I'm with Mayor Daniel Corona, who is the first openly gay elected mayor in Nevada state history, as well as the youngest mayor ever elected in the state of Nevada. Hi, Mayor Corona. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for for having me on. I'm super excited to talk to you. Yeah, so um, given that the majority of our viewers do not live in the U.S. or live in the state of Nevada, could you just start off by introducing yourself a little bit and also telling us a little bit about West Wendover as a town? Yeah, um, so I uh, am a fourth-generation uh, Nevadan, uh, a fourth-generation resident of, of West Wend- well, of the Wendover area. Um, West Wendover is kind of an interesting place. Um, because it is almost the opposite of what anyone would think about when you think of, of Vegas. Um, so when most people uh, hear that I'm from Nevada, uh, your mind immediately goes to the Las Vegas area. Um, but we are almost on the northernmost uh, end of the state, whereas Vegas is down on the southernmost. Uh, and then when I tell people I'm from northern Nevada, uh, a lot of people, I mean, if you've ever seen um, Sister Act, uh, think of Reno. Um, and we are on the, Reno is on the most western end of the state. We're on the most eastern. Um, so we're, we're very, um, we're farther from Las Vegas or Reno driving wise, which it takes about six hours to drive to either um, city than we are to Salt Lake City, which is the capital of Utah. Uh, which is only an hour and a half drive away from us. Um, we sit right on the border of Utah and Nevada. Um, our community is cut in half. There's West Wendover that's in Nevada and then Wendover, which is in Utah, um, which is a much older um, town. Uh, West Wendover is only about 27 years old um, as an incorporated city, whereas Wendover, Utah is 160 years old, I believe. Um, and so it's a much newer uh community than than mm-hmm. uh you know our, our fellow city across the across the street yeah so you recently endorsed secretary Julian castro for president of the united states uh could you explain a little bit why you chose to endorse him and if he were to no longer be a candidate for the presidency would you have a ch- second choice and if so who would that be um, so I, yeah, I, um, have been a huge fan of, um, Secretary Castro for, um, going on eight years now. Um, I remember, uh, in 2012 watching, um, 
the, the Democratic National Convention uh, and just being um, enamored with, with Secretary Ca- then Mayor Castro uh, as he gave um, the keynote address at the at the DNC. Um, at the time, he was I mean he became the first Latino to ever deliver that um, keynote address. Um, and as someone who who has you know mixed race um, background um, and is Latino, I, I it is there's not a lot of uh, Latino role models in politics. Um, I mean, they're starting to be more now, but uh, when I was growing up, certainly there weren't a lot of um, Latinos in, in elected positions that I could really look up to and want to aspire to be like. Uh, and Secretary Castro um, has been that for me. Um, since since that night in 2012, when I watched him deliver that speech, and and so is his brother Joaquin, um, and so they've been uh, personal heroes and idols of mine. Uh, and so when he, even before he announced, um, he had come to the state a couple times, um, as many presidential candidates do, as they're starting to gear up um, their their campaigns because Nevada is an early state. Um, so they you know come to Nevada to try to test the test the waters. Um, in 2018, he was here uh, quite a bit helping out uh, statewide candidates. And I um, received a call from him just kind of uh, out of the blue, an introductory call just to um, he had heard about me and the work that we're doing and he wanted to reach out. And I told him then um, that if he was in the race, I, I would be supporting him. Um, and then flash forward to him jumping into the race uh, and, and he just has been speaking to uh, the issues that are, that are important to me, that are important to my community. Uh, you know, he was the first one to come out with a comprehensive immigration plan. Um, the first one to, to talk about um, the first candidate ever in a democratic debate stage um, to talk about transgender rights. Um, mm-hmm. And as an LGBTQ person, that, that was huge for me. Um, and I just think that he's making a lot of right decisions um and it's unfortunate that he's not being covered uh the way that some of the <laughs> the front runners who um are are a lot less um qualified certainly and also um you know that they're not they're not talking to people about the same issues that secretary mm-hmm. castro has made a priority on um, the issues that i think that the, the democratic base wants to hear um and so it's unfortunate um, as far as the second choice, uh, my second choice dropped out a couple days ago. Okay. Uh, for me, for me, it was Julian Castro or Kamala Harris. Okay. Um, and so now I, I know that Secretary Castro um, is committed to this fight, and I know um, that he plans on being uh, in in it long enough to to participate in the Iowa caucus, um, and and then down into Nevada. And so um, I am not even looking at any other candidate. I plan to uh, caucus for Secretary Castro uh, in February. Yeah. So given the what you said about Secretary Castro's plan on immigration really resonating with you, I kind of want to use that as a segue into a question about rural communities like West Wendover. Um, given that West Wendover is based on my research, majority Latino, do you think that that's something that's very ignored by Democrats when they're planning nationwide campaigns, that they feel that 
rural areas are primarily Caucasian, whereas they may not actually be. Absolutely. I think you hit hit the nail um, on the head right there. Uh, there's this uh, misnomer that, that rural America equates to white, um, and that, that's false. Um, rural America looks just like the country as a whole. Um, I, I know, especially as like, I see it kind of different now that, um, I'm an elected official and I have, um, I'm blessed to be able to go out and meet other mayors from other, uh, parts of the country. Um, and I've talked to mayors who are from rural communities that are majority black. Um, I know a lot of, of rural mayors, primarily in the Southwest, uh, who are communities, whose communities have majority Latino populations. Um, and so I think that when people think of rural America, they think of uh, partly because it's it's the first voting state in, in our, our primary process. They think of like rural Iowa, uh, which is primarily white. Yeah. Um, the state of Iowa uh, as a whole is primarily white. Um, and so I think that, that because we, we focus our primaries um, to start in, in places like Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, where their rural communities are are predominantly white, um, we ignore the communities um, of color in rural America, and it, it's unfortunate because uh, rural America looks just like like the country as a whole. Yeah, so I want to use that as like another segue into referencing something Secretary Castro said a few weeks ago, I believe. He said that. Iowa and New Hampshire should not be the first two states in the nominating process because of their lack of representativeness of the Democratic Party as a whole. Do you agree with that? And if you do, what states do you think could serve as fillers for Iowa and New Hampshire as first in the nation states? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, Obviously, I'm a little biased because I I live here, but I think that um, Nevada would be a great early site or early state um, because it is still it's a it's a large geographic state, uh, but it's large enough population wise um, that if if the Democratic Party still wants the retail politics to be a focus of of the primaries, um, which is one defense that I've heard time and time again as to why Iowa and New Hampshire should be first, um, Nevadans. Nevada is an interesting state where people may not agree with you. uh, And I've seen this firsthand in in my community. They may not agree with you, but if you, if you've taken the time to go out and reach out to them and talk to them about the issues and and hear them on their issues, um, they're more likely to vote for you. Uh, And so I I think that Nevada, you can still get that retail politics uh, that the people keep claiming to and holding on to is saying that, that's why Iowa and New Hampshire should be first because they're smaller states. You can do that. Um, you can still do that in Nevada. Uh, and mm-hmm. also, geogra- I mean, demographically, Nevada looks like America. Um, our, our demographics probably most closely mirror those of the country. Um, and so I think that Nevada should be the first state. And then I also think that um, if you want a larger state, California or Texas would be a good place to start because both states, again, um, are very demographically diverse and look more like the country does. Yeah. Um, 
So I think another thing that has been quite largely ignored in this Democratic primary are Latino voters. And I've seen how candidates like Secretary Julian Castro and Senator Bernie Sanders have made significant outreach efforts. Do you think that the majority of the Democratic primary field should make more of an effort with Latino voters, or do you think that their efforts are sufficient? Uh, I, I absolutely think that there should be more of an effort. Uh, I, I think that it it's extremely disappointing that if Secretary Castro would not have been in this race, I don't think that the Democratic debates would have had a single question about immigration yet. Um, because the questions that were asked were related to him saying that, that Section 1825 should be repealed. Um, and he has been driving the conversation around immigration. And I don't think that if if he had been if he had not been in the race, I don't think that those questions would be being asked. I also um, don't think that, that we're talking enough about about our neighbors to the south and what we as a country can be doing um, to help improve conditions for folks so that they're not fleeing out of desperation, so that they're not taking this several thousand mile uh, mm-hmm. journey that's very dangerous um, just to come to America to seek opportunity. What can we do to help them um, you know, be able to get up seek those opportunities in their own country because uh, a lot of these people they don't want to leave they're they're fleeing yeah. um, because they're they're afraid for their lives or they're afraid for their kids lives um, so what are, what are we doing to help address those problems um, and it, it's not being talked about enough uh, just like climate change uh, hasn't really been seriously talked about enough uh, as it relates to the global migration crisis mm-hmm. Yeah, so on the issue of climate change, I wanted to know how, as a rural community, West Wendover has been affected by climate change, and in general, what issues do you feel most affect West Wendover, and how has Secretary Castro addressed them? Um, I I think that the extremes of our seasons now, um, it, it goes from... 100 degrees one week to (laughs) near freezing um and and it it hasn't always been that way um also the severity of of wildfires um not this past summer uh but the summer before um it was so bad the entire summer that my my three-year-old niece um at the time three-year-old niece uh she could not go outside and play at all the entire summer because her asthma was so bad that when she went outside she couldn't breathe uh, because Mm -hmm. the air was so bad from the wildfires Um, and so I think that you know as we look and talk about about climate change we can't just talk about it as like uh, you know the the planet's dying but people are dying Um, wildfires are more extreme now than they've ever been Uh, the, the, the wildfire season is longer than it's ever been. Um, and, and when you talk about like coastal communities, uh, hurricanes are, mm-hmm. are worse than they've ever been. Uh, and, and then when we talk about that, we also have to talk about recovery efforts. Uh, there's still parts of Puerto Rico that don't have power. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the secretary Castro um, is the only one who's even talking about that. 
um, that the people in Puerto Rico still don't have power, still don't have clean water. And it's because our government's negligence um, and, and our president's refusal to see them as American citizens, even though they are, uh, because it's a territory, um, it, it's just, it's a shame. Yeah. Um, so I just want to talk about something that I recognized while I was doing a bit of research for this interview. If you take away your name and the name of your city and you just say openly gay mayor, youngest ever elected in their state, you sound quite a bit like a 2020 candidate that is running for president. Could you explain a little <laughs> bit why you haven't endorsed Pete Buttigieg over Secretary Julian Castro? Um, <laughs> so I, I, I would add that there there's one uh, big difference between myself and, and Mayor Buttigieg. Uh, I, I consider myself a progressive, and I'm a proud progressive. Um, I, I see Mayor Buttigieg really tries to hold on to that, that moderate um, mantelpiece, uh, <laughs> and he, he, he's not a progressive. Um, I also, one of the biggest reasons that I don't support him uh, is, as Secretary Castro has said time and time again, the base of the Democratic Party is black women. If you if you cannot over over win over communities of color, if you as mayor uh, failed to when when you had communities of color coming to you uh, and telling you that you needed a change in the way the, that you policed them, um, that's a big problem. Uh, and, and time and time again, you see, you know, th- there's a video out there of uh, a lady and his, an interaction with him yeah. with some Black Lives Matter protesters. And the, the lady said, um, you're, tra- you're out here trying to get our vote. And he says, I don't want your vote. Um, th- those are constituents of his. Yeah. Uh, and, and for me as a mayor, I see that and it's, it's very problematic if that's as you talk to your to your constituents uh you're just the mayor of a, a mid-sized city uh yeah. how how are you going to talk to to people who put pressure on you when you're in the white house um because because the pressure is a lot different than, than it is going <laughs> from uh being the mayor of a sleepy college town to, to being the mayor of the united states yeah. or being the president of the united states not the mayor yeah i think that was really well said so on the issue of criminal justice Uh, Secretary Castro has been widely regarded as one of the main leaders in the primary field on this issue. What about his criminal justice policies do you think will benefit your community the most? And in general, what part of them do you think will benefit the country the most? Um, I think ending the school to prison pipeline, uh, Mm. you know, I, I... uh, it's something that, that I talk a lot about with my community members. Um, you know, kids go straight from school to, to prison. Um, there, there is this pipeline uh, where we, we have to figure out how to solve that and how to end that. Yeah. Uh, we shouldn't, um, we need to end the, the uh, racial disparities in the way that we, we handle crime and the way yeah. that we talk about crime. Uh, and a good start to that is legalizing marijuana 
and expunging the records of those who have been convicted uh, because yeah. those who have been convicted are primarily people of color. Uh, and, and it's, you know, uh, Senator Booker had, had a, a great line at the last debate yeah. uh, where he said, marijuana is already legal f- for kids of privilege um, because of the way we treat them. Uh, we, we don't convict kids of privilege for, for having marijuana on them or for, for smoking yeah. smoking marijuana. In fact, we, we laugh about it or um, it's a joke that uh, President Clinton said he smoked marijuana once, but he didn't inhale. Uh, yeah. Would we be saying the same thing if that was a candidate of color or um, someone else who, who, who was joking around like that? Um, and so I, I think that we have to change the way that we, we look at uh, at crime and justice, and we also have to, uh, you know, look at the way we we talk about policing. Um, I I am a strong believer in community policing, and that's what uh, Secretary Castro's uh, police plan is. It's basically what we have in my community already. Um, it's it's a system of of policing where where the police officers look like the community that they're in. Yeah. Um, and and where. Uh, they try de-escalation before uh, before for- use of force, um, and where you know it, it's a lot easier for for someone to police a community uh, if they know your name when they show yeah. up at your door, right? Uh, and so that's that's why it's important that we uh, you know recruit police officers from communities that they're going to be policing. Uh, you know, make make policing a job that kids want to grow up to be in um because if, if we're able to do that um it, it, it will i hope at least the hope is that it, it will end a lot of that and then also like i said end a lot of that institutional racism yeah so while we were talking about uh the issue of marijuana legalization i wanted to jump to the fact that west wendover recently opened a marijuana dispensary um and i was wondering how you felt about whether or not marijuana legalization was a way for rural communities to economically grow, and do you see that as kind of the key to helping to revive certain rural communities by integrating more modern industries into what they would consider as part of their economy? Uh, Absolutely. I um, pushed very hard uh, to get the dispensary approved mm. um, because I see it as as an economic um, benefit. Like I said earlier, uh, West Wendover, we are right on the border of Utah and Nevada, and we're only 120 miles from Salt Lake City. So mm. we, we already are getting up to 25,000 tourists every weekend. Yeah. Um, and so they're already coming here to, to gamble to to drink at our bars um and so why why don't we capitalize on this and why don't we uh use this new legal industry uh in in our state to to try to even capitalize on it even more and i yeah. think that uh as i as i've talked to other mayors around the state um a lot of a lot of them in rural communities they're not yet ready to embrace a dispensary okay. uh but a lot of them are are embracing the wholesaling uh in the in the grow centers um communities that i never in a million years thought uh would embrace marijuana 
uh, mayors who I talked to when I first got elected and was, mm-hmm. was you know, grappling with this issue who told me there was no way in a million years they would ever even consider it. Um, they are now some of the biggest proponents for, for the wholesales and for the, the warehousing. Uh, and so it's, it's been an interesting kind of evolution to watch. Uh, because I think a lot of yeah. a lot of folks just thought like, oh no, this is this is mm-hmm. an illicit drug. Um, although I mean, obviously that's not my opinion, yeah. but a lot of these mayors have that opinion, and then they see the economic benefit of it, uh, and and they're you know when when can we open? Is, is this mm-hmm. kind of the yeah. you're thinking? So uh, it's been a really interesting shift, and I think that. Uh, as the marijuana uh, legalization grows nationwide, uh, I think that you'll see that more in rural communities. Um, you know, maybe maybe communities that uh, were big agriculture communities that, um, for whatever reason, are no longer. Um, I think that you know, hemp and marijuana is a way that they could start to revitalize. Yeah. Um, so. On the topic of rural communities, you mentioned that you were quite surprised that some communities had populations that were more open to the idea of marijuana legalization. So I want to ask that about the stereotype of like a hick town or rednecks and that type of thing with regards to rural areas. Do you think that that's negative and that's also preventing people from being able to kind of see the true potential of rural communities on both an economic and political level? Uh, Absolutely. I I think that uh, rural America uh, and even, you know, just kind of from, you know, more locally from what I see, Mm -hmm. uh, rural Nevada gets gets a bad rap. Uh, There there are two openly gay mayors in the state of Nevada. We're both from rural communities. I, I think that 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 just that little fact right there mm-hmm. speaks volumes uh, as to as to what what rural uh, Nevada really is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think that the people I, I I don't even know where this came from. I think maybe like uh, you know like horror films like The Hills Have Eyes yeah. and Texas Chainsaw Massacre have <laughs> uh, given yeah. you know like people from urban areas this like. Uh, fear of rural communities or, or this thought that, that the, we're all just, um, you know, backwards towns that, you know, hate, hate minorities or, or hate gays um, or people from the LGBTQ community when, when in fact it, it's not, it couldn't be yeah. further from the truth. Uh, I think that uh, as I tell people all the time, as I travel the state, some of the nicest people I've ever met are, are from the more rural parts of our state. Yeah. Um, that you know, there, there's it, people. People in rural, especially rural Nevada, uh, are are very welcoming and, and ready to to accept you uh, in into into their community and, and make you feel at home. Uh, and, and I think that you know we we talk about rural America like it's a uh, you know sometimes something to be afraid of. Like I said, mm-hmm. or. Uh, these backwards places where, where progress can't happen. Um, but, but that's not the case. I think that, you know, there, there are places like, like West Wendover, um, Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, have, uh, not just diverse populations, but have very young populations. The median age in West Wendover is 28. Yeah. Um, so we're a very young community. 
and, and people typically don't think of that uh, when they think of rural America. They think conservative, white, older. Uh, but that's not the case for a lot of rural communities, and, and I think that it, it does negatively impact us. Yeah, so I think that leads me to like the culmination of this interview, which is based on your experience, how do you think Democrats will be able to win in rural areas like West Wendover, but also those that are a bit more in the mold of being conservative and majority white and older, and how do you think that as... Uh, someone who supports Secretary Castro, how do you think that he's uniquely positioned to win over rural communities? Uh, showing up. Yeah. I, I think that the, the biggest thing that Democrats can do, uh, and I keep uh, telling candidates, I, I was kind of beating the drum as loud as I can in 2018 with our, mm-hmm. our gubernatorial election. Yeah. Uh, I, I was you know, really fighting to get every single Democrat out into West Wendover, and not even just the Democrats, but also the Republicans. Yeah. Um, because the the people in my community, they're just as much part of the state as anyone from Las Vegas or Reno. Uh, their voice is just as important, and their yeah. issues uh, are, are just as important. And, and they really, um, if a candidate shows up, people, people take notice, uh, and they they're more likely to to support that person uh that they know if if they know that someone knows that they exist uh they're going to want to support them because you you aren't going to vote for the person who has never heard of your city um or or who has never made the effort to come out and uh, engage voters here to to learn about the issues uh and so I, i think that that's one thing that in this primary uh, really has set Secretary Castro apart so far. Um, yeah. He he's really following that 2008 Obama playbook. Uh, uh, then Senator Obama he made um, several visits to rural Nevada more than more than Secretary yeah. Clinton. Uh, and okay. so, in the end, it worked out for him, and he was able to to, to win win the state. Uh, and I think that that Secretary Castro is doing a really good job at, at following that, that playbook yeah. his um, you know, his, his slogan is people first. Uh, and it's not just a, a corny slogan that, that they yeah. use and they don't really mean, uh, he shows that he means it by, by showing up in places. Uh, he was the first presidential candidate ever to visit West Wendover. Yeah. Um, the first Democrat of this cycle to visit Elko, the first, I mean, there's so many yeah. communities that he was the first this cycle to visit. Uh, and, and it's because he, he actually is taking the time to meet voters where they're at, not just go mm-hmm. to Vegas and Reno and expect people to show up there mm-hmm. or the surrounding communities. Um, he's really venturing out into the state. And, and his campaign staff only has four people in Nevada. And it, it's just amazing that how, how much ground they are able to cover before between the four of them. Yeah. Um, the staff alone has had three visits to West Wendover um, and they've had multiple to other parts of the state. Um, And so I think it really shows, uh, you know, a a want to win the state um, and that's how you do it. And it's also showing um, that that he cares about Nevada and he wants to hear uh, from the people of the state on the issues that affect them. And that's how I think you win. Yeah. So, 
On that, do you think Secretary Castro's chances of winning the Democratic nomination and the state of Nevada are being greatly underestimated by the mainstream media? And do you have like personal experience that you feel would be able to prove otherwise? Uh, absolutely. I, I think that um, in, in today's era, polling is so unreliable. Um, I mean, if, if polling were correct and polling were um, the final word, we wouldn't even be talking about Secretary Castro running for president because we'd yeah. be talking about President Clinton's re-election. Exactly. Um, we, if, if, if polling was trustworthy, <laughs> Donald Trump would have never become president. Yeah. Uh, I, I think especially in a place like Nevada where we have a lot of shift workers People don't work regular Monday through Friday, nine to five jobs. Yeah. They're working odd hours. They're not going to pick up their phone when a poll pollster calls. Um, also, Nevada is kind of, uh, when compared to the rest of the country, a younger state. A lot of pollsters only call landlines. Okay. Um, most Nevadans don't have landlines. Uh, so yeah. it makes the state very hard to poll. And so the people that they are polling are much older, much yeah. wider, um, and, and come from higher socioeconomic standing than than the people who are actually going to participate yeah. on caucus day, and so I, I don't think that um, the polling's correct. I also don't think um, I, I feel that the the media has this flawed uh, flawed idea on what what electability is. Um, if if you look at just look at one example, Beto O'Rourke, um, yeah. when when he announced he was running for president, you would have thought just by the media coverage on him that he was going to be the nominee. Yeah, he was one of the first candidates out, um, and so I, I think that the media is not not trustworthy in that in that um, kind of judgment uh, because they they keep backing candidates that, that end up slipping in the polls, that yeah. uh, end up looting, losing their resources. Meanwhile, ignoring the candidates that are out, you know, on the field, building up grassroots coalitions that are going to get them elected. Uh, and I think that that's, I think that come Iowa, and especially come Nevada, I think in Nevada, Secretary Castro is going to surprise a lot of people. Yeah. Um, because I, I think that polling doesn't reflect his support. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so just to kind of sum up this interview, what um, we're going to do is we're going to play a short game, which is mainly okay. word association. So I'm going to say the name of a major politician, probably a candidate for 2020, and <laughs> I'm just going to ask you to kind of tell me what comes to your mind first when you think of them. <laughs> I feel like this could get me in trouble. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so my first one is going to be Joe Biden. I I think, she's. Uh, I had the word in my head and it, it left. Um, established, um, not necessarily establishment, but okay. but established within the party. Um, Bernie Sanders. Um, visionary. Uh, he's been talking about issues for longer than, than most of the other candidates have been alive. Elizabeth Warren. Bold. She's got bold policy proposals, and, and yeah. she's a very bold person. 
um, Cory Booker. Leader. Um, he... I think he was a, a fantastic mayor, and he's someone that, that I look up to as mayor. Julian Castro. <laughs> well, the first <laughs> one that comes to my mind is president, uh, oh, because wow. I, I truly hope that he is the 46th president of the United yeah. States. Um, so, yeah, I'd say president. Mm. Um, Amy Klobuchar. Oh, I didn't have a word that... I, I would say strength. Yeah. Um, what about Andrew Yang? Innovative. Um, Pete Buttigieg. Blackluster. Um, Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, I would say fearless, but not necessarily in a good way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just to sum this up, aside from Secretary Castro, which other candidate do you think is greatly underestimated in this race? Uh, I, I think Andrew Yang is, and I think he's proven it. Yeah. Um, time time and time again i he certainly is not a candidate that has ever really been on my radar um and in fact like when he qualified for the first debate i remember yeah. joking with one of my friends like um who who supports this guy like i have never even met a, a yang supporter uh but his his support and his base is like consistently growing yeah. uh, and i think it's catching a lot of people off guard it certainly caught me off guard um, and I think it's catching a lot of people off guard, and yeah. I think he's being underestimated as well. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this interview. It was really great. Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank for, you. for having me on. Thank you once again for listening to this episode of United We Listen, a podcast by and for teens about people, politics, and our planet. You can support this podcast in one of three ways. The first way you can do it is by sharing this podcast with friends. It will be very easy to simply take a screenshot or to use the share button on whatever platform you're listening to this on. The second way you can do it is by chipping in a few dollars on our podcast website, which is anchor.fm slash UWL. Again, that is www.anchor.fm slash UWL. You can chip in a few dollars to help contribute to the growth of this podcast by helping us invest in better equipment and helping us to bring on very, very amazing guests like the ones you listen to today. Lastly, you can help support this podcast by following us on social media. We have the handle at TROP News on Instagram and on Twitter. So that is at T-R-O-P-N-E-W-S, all lowercase. Please continue to support this podcast and help the student-led independent journalism grow. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you enjoyed this episode.